if you want to summarize a lot of information to uh, just a very concise report, uh, a lot of times it's referred to as the white paper or the white page. It's the, the cover page or the summary of just various points that you want to consolidate down. And I think it's, it's interesting to note that the worship of this church is consolidated, their church covenant and their rules that they did abide by are consolidated to two pages. Can't refer to it as the white paper because this is pretty brown due to age, but it's two two simple pages. We're gonna, after services, open it up up here, and if you want to take pictures of it, the one on the left is the church covenant. The one on the right is the uh, the rules of discipline that the church practiced as well. So it's real interesting to to note that it can all be summed up basically to two pages right here. And that this has continued for about 300 years. Now, as far as the history of the primitive or old school Baptist here in this country, that's almost as far back as it goes. The church in Welsh Track in Newark, Delaware, if you drive up Interstate 95, get off the first exit, exit number one, after you pass the toll booth, Uh, That is Route 896, and the very first uh, old school or primitive Baptist church is there today, and they still have services there. So they've been meeting consistently, uh, to my knowledge, without any lapse in service for over 300 years. The second church was uh, the old London Track Church, the one that Elder Compton and some of the folks here attended for years, and that's uh, also north of the Newark area. It was started in 1706. The Southampton and Hopewell churches, Hopewell was started in 1715, Hopewell, New Jersey, Southampton in the 1730s. So in this area, in this uh, 60-mile radius, was a lot of the, um, the beginnings of the churches here in this country. And it was actually before the country was established as the United States of America. I joke with Sister Peggy occasionally. She said she was depressed when she found out that her pastor was younger than she was. And I remind her that at least when I was born, there were 50 stars in the flag. Only 48 when she was. Well, this happened before there was even a flag. Before the 13 colonies. It goes all the way back before the United States of America. When they were meeting here. They certainly didn't have the luxuries that we enjoy. They certainly didn't have the luxuries in transportation that we enjoy. But they were faithful to me. And in what one of the points that Brother Ben uh, uh, read about was the reference how that God had recently prospered and blessed Zion in an unusual way. Because if you go through and read the accounts, the folks would sign their name in the book that this is what they believe. 
But just in a very short period of time of maybe two or three years, there were 236 people that joined this church through baptism and were members of the church in just a very short period of time. So God did prosper the church. And then shortly after that, there was reference of the church lettering out groups of individuals to start sister churches around. So I want to go through and acknowledge what this church confesses that they believed in 1803. And they were referring to the constitution of this church in the early 1700s. And it says, we whose names are hereunto subscribed, being baptized by immersion upon profession of faith, we profess to renounce antinomianism and Arminianism. Now, in the day in which this church was started, apparently these were some isms that they were dealing with at the time. Arminianism, meaning more along the lines of free willism, antinomianism, folks were confused about the Mosaic law. Some said it was required to keep, others said it was not, that if you're saved by grace, you're not bound by the law. And so these were two maybe current topics that the church was struggling with at that time. And so they summarize it this way by by saying this. We basically, we believe and profess. It says that, uh, it says we profess to denounce antinomianism and Arminianism. And this is how they summarized it. And this still stands today. It says, and all dependence on anything in ourselves or done by ourselves in the matters relating to peace with God. They're just simply saying right there that their situation with God, their position with God is not a result of themselves. That they do not have peace with God. And then they get a little bit more in detail. He says, relating to peace with God or justification before God or the pardon of sin. They say that we acknowledge that we can't depend upon ourselves for our salvation. We can't depend upon ourselves to pay the price for our sins. We can't depend upon ourselves to secure a home in heaven. But then they tell us what it does depend upon. But it's on the free grace of God in Christ alone, the Redeemer. And it references Romans chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at a couple of their references. So they're basically saying that they believe that their salvation, their position before God, their justification, their pardon for sin, 
is solely and completely by the free grace of Almighty God and no other. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. One of the principal points that we believe is taught in the scripture is that all men sin and that in our natural state, in our Adam state, we're not worthy to seek God. We're not able to seek God. We're not able to pursue God. Paul says, for all that sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He says that we've acknowledged that we're sinners, but we also acknowledge that we are justified. And it's solely by the grace of Almighty God. God through Jesus Christ, paid the price for our sins. And God, who is the giver of life, quickens us and gives us spiritual life. And basically, they're saying right here, we recognize that we don't have this power. They've been holding to this position, and the churches that came as offshoots of this church still hold to this today. Ephesians chapter 1, it references uh, again the very same thing they break it down a little bit more uh, as we continue to read Ephesians chapter 1 says it like this in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. He basically says right here that he redeems us and he pays the price for our sins. And then he reveals it to us. He shows it to us. So their first point is that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer alone. He paid the price for our sins. We're justified before God because of Jesus Christ. And they take no credit but give God all the glory. Then it says, And that God hath from eternity, according to the good pleasure of His counsel and His own will, justified to save a certain number of the fallen posterity of Adam by Jesus Christ, according to the riches of His grace. They just simply say right here that God is sovereign, that He is the potter, that we are the clay, and that He, through His sovereign choice, as He chooses and when He chooses, that He redeems, that He pays the price, that He quickens His people, that God is the one that makes that choice and not ourselves. And here's the reference that's given to it. Grace be unto you. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 1. Really good writing from Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus 
Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. By the way, we might just note right here that God who is the giver of blessings, it says that He blesses us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. He gives us just exactly what we need. There's not anything that's lacking that God is not able to give us. God gives us what we need. He says He gives us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then verse 4. According as He. So it tells us who it is that does the choosing. We don't choose ourselves. No one else chooses for us. It's God that does the choosing. According as He hath chosen us in Him. He basically is saying right here, I've chosen you in me. And He also tells us when He did it. Now this church is old. This building is old. The original church is very old. But our election through Christ is much older than the United States of America. It's much older than this world as we know it. Because he says right here, according as he hath chosen us in him. God chose us in Christ through him. And he tells us here, he did it before the foundation of the world. So the timeline of God choosing you was from before the foundation of the world. And he said that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5. This is what they're referencing right here. They are saying that they believe that God has a people that Christ died for. That's going to live with him in glory someday. And that God is the sovereign God when he does the choosing. Now, here's how Paul puts it right here. And this is where they get it. Paul says, having predestinated. Now, here's a way you can break down this long word predestination. Some folks embrace the idea that predestination means that God predetermines every act that you do or every thought that you have, every word that you say. Predestinate, at least the way that I was taught and the way that I understand it, Elder Compton, 100 plus years old, helped me with this. Predestinate means that he predetermined our destination. That our destiny is predetermined. Now, I have to tell you that I'm really glad that that God predetermined where we're going to end up. He's predetermined our destination. And he says, having predetermined our destination, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And then he tells us why he did it. He predetermined our destiny from before the foundation of the world. And then he says, and this is why he did it. According to the good pleasure, God didn't consult with us. God didn't consult with the preacher. He says it's according to the good pleasure of His will. 
So if you wonder why God did it the way that he did, it's just that that pleased God to do it that way. That God was pleased. He says, according, he says, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Occasionally you'll hear the importance of accepting Christ. Here it tells us that Christ accepts us. Yes, it's important that we believe. It's important that we believe on Jesus Christ. It certainly is. But our belief is not the cause of our eternal life. Our belief is the result of the life that God has given us. If you've been quickened and made alive by Christ Jesus, by the Spirit of Almighty God, you have a heart to serve God, to love God, even to seek God. You have a belief in God, and that comes from God. So God is the one that sought us out, that chooses us, and makes us accepted in Him. Uh, Romans chapter Romans chapter 8. Real good uh, verses here. Uh, chapter 8 and 9 are both excellent in this. Chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And then he begins to mention five things right here. And these things are working together for our good. For whom? So here's another example right here that he's talking about predetermining our destination. And he's talking about people. He's talking about individuals. For whom? For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brethren. And then he says, and, and here's, here's five elements right here. And certainly we would all agree that these five elements work together for our good. He says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, predetermine the destination. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. He calls with a life-giving voice. He calls us from a life of sin to serve him. Those that he predestinates, he also calls. Now, an individual that's called by God's grace, that has been given spiritual life, there's a difference in that individual. Some of the things that may be satisfied and entertained in the past, the pleasure is not the same. He says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, he also justified. So at least up to this point, he's the one doing all the work. We're the recipients of what God has done for us. God predetermines our destination. God calls us. God justifies us, and He justifies us through Jesus Christ. And those that He justifies, He also glorifies. Now, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. There's not any of us here that are present in this congregation that have physically been risen with Christ. We can look at the folks that are buried in the cemetery, the, the, the tombstones that are out here. And it's symbolic of individuals who 
uh, although their bodies are in the ground and probably most likely have certainly decayed to the dust of the earth by this point, the, the memorials are indications that their soul that was in their body is not there anymore. Their soul is not in the grave out here. Their soul is not uh, sleeping somewhere. But their soul went immediately to go and be with the Lord. And then we have the assurance that we delight to rejoice in. That there's coming a day that the Lord's going to come back. And He's going to call us home. And these graves are going to burst open. And the body will be a changed and a new body. It's not going to have all these afflictions of old age. It's not going to, it's not going to have the wrinkles. It's not going to have, uh, it's not going to have the difficulty seeing or, or uh, all the difficulties that, that challenge us with, with old age. But it's going to be changed into the image of Christ. And we're going to be resurrected into glory. And then we will experience the fullness of the glorified state. Now, even though we haven't physically experienced it here, Paul tells us that those that he called, those that he predestinated, those that he foreknew, he justified those individuals and he also glorifies the individuals. The final glorification will be when God takes us on home to glory. But you stand, as Paul said in uh, Colossians chapter 3, you stand in a state right now, in a glorified state, because all those things that God, it's as, it's as sure as done for you. Plus, you can also get a glimpse and a taste of glory here on this earth. And you wouldn't experience that if you didn't experience this change, this new life, this new birth. Paul puts it that way. He says that those that, that Jesus Christ foreknew and predestinated and called and justified, that they're going to be glorified. And I can encourage you to know that it's the very same number that he started out with. That those that were predestinated in Christ by God, the exact same number of individuals are going to be the same number that are glorified in a glorified state that will live with Him in glory. Now, lest you should be concerned, most of the references in the Scriptures when it's talking about the family of God, it's talking about a big family. It's not us four and no more. It's talking about a large family. And the references that are made to the family of God, and this should give you some encouragement, even some degree of assurance to know that the family of God is compared to the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Now only God can number the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. I believe that it uses those analogies just so that we understand that it's a big family. God has a big family. And He knows who they are and He knows where they are. So we'll continue with. It says, and that God hath from eternity, according to the good pleasure and counsel of his own will, 
purpose to save a certain number of the fallen posterity of Adam by Jesus Christ according to the riches of His grace and fixed upon the plan of accomplishing the same, hereby magnifying His sovereign grace and mercy and great love in Christ. And that we hold salvation by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it being the gift of God. So basically what they're saying is that that the way that God designed salvation in such a sovereign way, it gives glory to God. The salvation and the design of salvation and the way that God worked it out turns around and points the glory back to God. There's not any place that man can claim any glory or any credit. Uh, we take good things and mess them up. God can take bad things and turn them around to where they're good. But God designed salvation in such a way that by magnifying His sovereign grace that God gets all the glory. The reference that they make to it is Ephesians chapter 2. We love Ephesians chapter 2. Excellent portion of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you hath He quickened. Quickened just simply means He made you alive. Now, I've heard this analogy used and it's simple and I can understand it. This is a simple doctrine. It's a, uh, a simple uh, belief. I've heard it said and certainly we could acknowledge that we didn't have anything at all to do with our natural birth. We didn't. We couldn't determine that time or when it happened. But God did. We didn't have the control of that. And it's the same way about our spiritual birth. God quickens us with His Spirit when He chooses to do it. Sometimes it's possible that it's yet when the individual's in the mother's womb. It's possible that it's when the individual is like David upon his mother's breast. It's possible that they're uh, in a younger state in their youth. Or it could be in the old age years. Or it could be at the last hour of their life like the thief on the cross. But God is the one that is sovereign in quickening and when He does it. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And then here's where it really begins to, to bring it together. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were not lovable. It says, God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive, together with Christ, and he says, by grace are ye saved. Again, he says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And so what they're saying right here is that we believe that the way that God designed salvation, it's by His sovereign pleasure, His sovereign will, and He gets all the glory for it. 
that he quickens us, he makes us alive, and then the credit goes to the Lord. And it says, and those, it says, and those that the Father, whose name the Father chose in Christ, gave unto him and were redeemed by him, shall never perish, but shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So they're basically saying right here that they embraced the understanding that if an individual is born of the Spirit of God, that they're saved eternally. They're not saved one day and lose their salvation the next. But if they're saved by the grace of God, that the same grace that quickens them and gives them spiritual life will also preserve them. It will keep them. They will be kept by the grace of God. They're not going to wander away from God to the point. They may make choices in life that they are distant from God. God knows how to get our attention, bring us back to Him. God knows what's effective in each one of our cases. But what they're saying right here is that we believe that if an individual is saved by the grace of Almighty God, that that individual will also be kept by the same amazing grace of Almighty God. There's individuals that you may know in your life that, that maybe at one point in time uh, in their youth or in their early years, they acknowledged and professed a hope in Christ and they rejoiced maybe in the worship and the fellowship of the saints. They delighted in the hymn singing. And then as they uh, got older, maybe they uh, drifted away and it seemed like that maybe they had lost those desires completely. From what our forefathers embraced, what we believe the Scriptures teach is that if an individual is chosen, if an individual is quickened, if an individual is given spiritual life, if an individual is saved by the grace of God, that individual is also kept by the grace of God. The same grace that quickens us, gives us spiritual life, also keeps us here in this life. So we may wonder from the Lord, but the Lord knows how to get our attention, just like a loving parent would a child. So that's what they're saying. We believe that individuals that are saved are kept by the same grace of Almighty God. We believe that all mankind fell from created innocency and in and by Adam's first sin and became nature, nature of the children of wrath, even as others, and have neither the will nor the ability to do any good without spiritual renewing grace of God. John chapter 5, verse 40, it references. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. So basically, they're saying right here that they do embrace the doctrine of depravity. That we are depraved in and through ourselves, through Adam through the sin of Adam and the sin of our forefather, Adam, through Adam's sin. When 
Satan tempted Eve, and Eve and Adam partook of the sin. It says that death passed upon all mankind, that at that time we all fell in Adam. So we understand that we as individuals, we're sinners by nature through our forefather Adam. But we're also sinners by practice. Even though we inherited sin through our forefather Adam and he represented all of us, not long after we're born do we begin to exercise and practice sin. And then it oftentimes becomes a pattern or a struggle throughout our life. You know, the Apostle Paul summed it up like this. He says, I have this struggle, this outward man and this inward man. And he says, this struggle that goes on warring within me. He said, oh, wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul acknowledges that right there. And that struggle comes as a result of the fall of Adam. And then we inherit that through our relationship with Adam. But then we also are condemned in our own actions as well. So we're condemned two ways. We're condemned through our forefather Adam. And then we condemn ourselves through our own sins as well. And what our forefathers are saying right here is that we can't change that condition. We can't wake up one day and say that we're going to be a whole lot better. That we're going to improve that situation. That the only way that that situation improves is by something that is external of us. That it is the power of Almighty God equipping us and enabling us. Elder Compton used to say it like this. He said, God gives us both the desire and the ability. That's what they're saying right here. We find ourselves in a big mess aside from God. But it's God that gives us the desire and the ability. If your sin grieves you, it's because God gave you the ability to be grieved by your sin. God gives you the desire. God gives you the ability. And that's what they're they're saying right here. That we don't choose God. God chooses us. We don't we don't earn favor with God. Because of deciding that we're going to uh, live a good life. The desire to live a good life comes as a result of God working within our heart. And then the last point that's made in this one page, this white page summary right here is this. And that, continuing on down with the thought. And that the believers in Christ are justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Meaning it's not by keeping the law that we earn favor with God. That we're justified by faith without the deeds of the law created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's the blessing of God. Your salvation is the gift of Almighty God through Christ Jesus. You'll live with God in glory because of the gift of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary, as He was giving His life, He remembered you. He thought about you. He redeemed you. And here's what Paul says. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And he says, it's not of works. Your salvation, your deliverance, your hope in Christ, is not based on your works. So is there a place for good works? Probably one of the reasons that you come to church is you'd like to live a little bit better today or tomorrow than what you did last week. You'd like to maybe not have some of those thoughts that you had last week. Or you'd like not to say some of those things that you said that you wish that that you could take back. You desire that there's some degree of improvement. Is it even possible? Is it important? Or are we just saved by grace? We believe we are. We're saved by grace. Does that mean that that we can just go out and it doesn't matter how we live? It doesn't matter what we do or what we think if we believe that we're saved by grace. If, if being saved by grace, if we realize that we're not going to lose our salvation, is it important that we perform good works? We've already read that our good works are not what redeems us. We've read that it's not our good works that delivers us and saves us. Is it important that we even perform good works? This is how Paul sums it up right here. Our salvation is not based on works of righteousness. And then he tells us the reason why it's not. He says, lest any man should boast. The reason it's not... I mean, he tells us clearly right here the reason that it's not based on our works. One of the reasons, there may be multiple reasons, but he says right here that one reason is that if our salvation had anything to do with our works, then we would want to boast in it. And God is a jealous God, and God is not going to share His glory with another, and God is not going to allow us to boast in something Therefore, the way He designed it and created it, it's in such a way that God gets the glory. But here's what He says. It's not of works. Our salvation is not. But He says, we are His workmanship. What does that sound like? His workmanship. You and I are the workmanship of God. Now, if he's the potter and we're the clay, um, Sister Anna, some of you have some of her uh, pottery that she enjoys making. And she'll just work on a project, work on a vessel or a cup or a bowl or something until it's just perfect. And if it doesn't suit her, she'll start over with it. Well, it gives the indication that we are God's workmanship. And God's working on us. And sometimes when God works on us, it's not real pleasant. Not real comfortable. God works on it, works on us sometimes because He needs to get our attention, because change needs to be made. And sometimes that's difficult. But here's what He says. We are His workmanship, 
And by the way, everything that God does, everything that God does when He's working on our behalf or in our life or around us or in our family or in our church, when God is working, He's always doing it for two reasons. Number one, for our good. Because He knows we need it. And number two, for His glory. So we are His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. And He says we're created unto good works. What is he just, what's He saying right here? He says, yes, good works are important. He's creating us unto good works. He's working in us and around us and through us in order that we will begin to produce fruit that honors God. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What he's basically saying right here is that this is what God has designed and ordered that we walk in good works, not to secure our home in heaven, but because we are heaven bound. We should desire to follow. And that if we desire, it's God that gives us that desire. And if we're able to serve Him, it's God that gives us the ability. And our forefathers acknowledged that in the founding of this church back in the early 1700s. And if you read our... This is referred to as the church covenant. In ours at Mount Carmel, it's referred to as the articles of faith. They're very, very similar. And most of the old Baptist churches, the articles of the covenant would be very, very similar. No matter where, if you're in Texas or Florida or Georgia, doesn't matter wherever you are, they're very, very similar. One of the reasons they are is that it's just the way that the church the way that God designed that the church grow and prosper and spread. The way the churches started throughout the United States and and other countries, the Philippines and Mexico and some other places, is exactly the same way. God blesses a little body of believers to prosper and grow. As we mentioned, this body grew to, in a short period of time, 226. And out of that, they would go over and maybe start a church up in Pennsylvania or a church in Southern Maryland or churches in different areas. And that's how the churches would continue. And when a church is constituted, many of you, several of you, have been to a church constitution, the one in Southampton was the most recent. I know Elsa was there, her family. But when a church is constituted, it's, it's, a, it's a real important and serious and blessed event. It's much like when a minister's ordained or a deacon's ordained, that the way that it works, basically, is that individuals, in one case, it has the names of 26 individuals that lived in a different area. It'd be like Sister Jewel and Brother Carlton up in the Amish country. Maybe they have family friends around there that have been attending and would join. And they'd say, you know, it's an hour drive for us. We'd like to see if the Lord's in the matter to start a church in this area. And so a church would start up there. 
Or maybe a church would start down in the, the Essex-Dundalk area. Maybe God would bless a church there or the Towson area uh, just all around. And then out of that, other churches would grow and prosper as well. And that's how God designed the church to continue. And so we shouldn't be surprised when 300 years later we can look at the articles or covenants of churches that we're familiar with and they're very, very much the same. It's because of the way that God designed that churches would continue on. But it's also the great desire of the churches and the pastors to get back and stick with the old paths. And that if we aren't embracing the old paths, if we've embraced something that's come on the scene in recent years that's not one of the old original paths, that we try to go back to the old path. Not, I heard someone say, not just an old rut, but the original path. And the best way for us to do that is we could, we could bypass all of this history that's in, in this book and the other books as long as we go all the way back to what the disciples set forth in the early church of Jesus Christ. So in the book of Acts, as thankful as I am, and I, and I, I am so thankful for the rich history and heritage that we have here, and it's a blessing to me, and it's been a blessing to you. You've mentioned it to me. Different ones have, have mentioned what a, a, a blessing that connection is. And what a great blessing it is. But we need to be able to go back much further than just 300 years. We need to be able to go all the way back to the original founding of the church of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts when, when the Lord was there. And... If we're following those paths, if we're following what the disciples set forth, we shouldn't be surprised when it takes us back and lines up with what our forefathers had back in um, 300 years ago, almost 300 years ago. I'll sum it up with this. Here's how Paul says it right here. All of this is real good, but I'm going to get down here and sum it up. Now when they heard this, Acts chapter 2, they were pricked in their heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles and brethren said, What shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Here's the instruction that Peter gave. And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you, and it's unto your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. God's still in the business of calling His people into His church. God's still in the business of calling His people and giving them spiritual life. And here's what He says. And with many other words did He testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Boy, if we've ever lived in a time or a generation that's an untoward generation, I think truly the one we're living in, would this would be a fitting description. He says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. 
Did you know that I found out a long time ago? You don't, it's not my role to talk somebody in to baptism. Baptism is not going to get you a home in heaven. It says baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not going to pay the price for your sins. But it is the answer of a good conscience before God. The time to be baptized is when God stirs your conscience. When God puts it on your heart and He's convicted your heart, that's the time to do it. God is still in the business of stirring hearts. Look what He said. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now we were talking and we were amazed at 236 folks joining this church. And probably all of them joined through baptism. I'd like to know where they went and baptized around here. be interesting to know that. I enjoy thinking on that. But here it says 3,000 were baptized. And it says, and here it sums it up. Here it wraps it up. And they, those that were baptized, and they continued steadfastly. You know, one of the things about our forefathers, we were blessed. We were blessed with some wonderful forefathers right here. But even in our lives, we had some really great folks. Brother Mark had um, uh, Brother John Davis, his, his uncle, Brother Don Malcolm, Brother Oris Jackson. Uh, some of those super faithful saints. Brother Kilby's still with us and what a great blessing that he is but they were faithful because it meant something to them and what Paul is saying right here is that they continued steadfastly it meant something to them they continued steadfastly and here's what they continued in they continued in the apostles doctrine now I'm thankful we can trace it back 300 years right here almost 300 But I'm thankful we can take it even further back to the Apostles' Doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. They continued in fellowship. They continued in breaking of bread and in prayers. And it says, And and fear came upon all every soul. And it continues on down. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I'm thankful to know that God is still in the business of adding to His church those that He would delight to share this great blessing.